Welcome to the workshop. The workshop is more than an adult Sunday school. The workshop is a systematic discipleship program for teens and adults, which takes place Sunday morning prior to the service. Our focus is to be building disciples that are grounded in the basic principles of the gospel for spiritual health and for service, and to be equipped to minister broadly to meet spiritual needs around them and to develop and use their particular giftedness for the good of Christ's church. We typically run three 10 to 12 week semesters per year in the fall, winter, and spring. And we look at having some kind of missions project during the summer. If you're interested in finding out more about the workshop, please feel free to contact our administrator at New West Community Church and you can find us on the web at newwestcommunitychurch.com. Thanks very much. Take care. God, we thank you that you are one, you are spirit, and we thank you that you've called us to worship in spirit and in truth because your spirituality is imprinted upon us. You are, Lord God, love and goodness and light and truth, and Lord, we thank you for your inherent attributes. Um, Lord, we pray that we might, because we have been here today and interacted with this content um, about the nature of our great God, that we will be able to worship you better, be able to serve you more, and even be able to explain to others, including unbelievers that we may be interacting with in the world, uh, who you are and what you are like. We pray that you would help me to, uh, to speak on uh, a very deep topic. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So you have at your tables some items. Uh, and uh, this, we're going to start with an exercise this morning. Um, in the center of your table, you will have something. Uh, and uh, this is the first, I'm gonna only going to give you a few minutes to start this. But essentially, you're going to, with your table, not just individually, but with your table, you're going to discuss it. You're going to answer the question, what is this? Okay, pretty simple question, I think. But then maybe a slightly more difficult question, what makes it what it is? Okay. So look, there's, there's no one except for Pastor Tim at this table. There's a pen here. All right. Now I just, I just answered the first question, right? That one's easy. Pen. But what, what makes this a pen? Ready? Go. Okay. Welcome to kindergarten and show and tell. So uh, we'll start with the back and uh, Laura. Hi, Laura. Have, have you ever taught kindergarten? Hey. Oh, for one day. There we go. <laughs> one whole day. Uh, back table. Would you tell me what the item is and uh, what makes it that thing? Okay. <laughs> okay. Good. Good. That's holding it. Very good. Okay. It's a board eraser. Okay. And the reason we know that it's a board eraser is um, A, by shape and materials. Okay. We also know what a board eraser is made for. Oh. So we know the purpose of it okay. and by trying it out. Okay. And then the discussion was, does it erase only felt pens or chalk as well? That we don't <laughs> know. We would have to try it. So for <laughs> other purposes, but yeah. Very good. Very good. Well done. Well done. 
All right. Uh, Marika's table. Will you tell me what that is and uh, what? Yeah. And, and, and what makes well, it? Well, Dean said this is actually a weight thing for the uh, like a paperweight. Oh, a paperweight. <laughs> yeah. I'm teasing. I'm teasing. But 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 it was discussed that it could work as a paperweight. Ah, but it was created to be a tape dispenser with tape in it. And we know that because of its construction, its function, it's it's got uh, all all the parts. Um, what else did we say about it? Um, yeah, most it was built for that. That was the purpose. Yeah. And, and and it's it's got the way it is constructed. It will do what it's supposed to do as long as you don't wreck it. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Very good. So it it you you knew it was one thing and not the other because of it purpose and all of its purposes was designed for that even though it could possibly be used as a paperweight as well that's right it's not its function that's not what makes it what it is yeah yeah very good very good um we could go all sorts of ways with this with this we're, we're gonna get we're gonna take one little part of of this and, and and apply it but uh good this table here what did you have and what makes it what it is uh this object is a tool and especially essential for a repairman. And it's the same thing that is applicable in life because you need it in order to make money. It creep things, fix things, repair. At the same time, a tool that is very important in life. And it also signify, I think, in life as a priest or a minister oh. has a tool using the bible to okay preach. oh very good just, theology of tools there yes, yes that's excellent wow very good very good yeah yeah and so you're building out the function of it and applying it in different ways and seeing some even some biblical symbolism very wow very good very good all right this table here what did you have now i pulled a bit of a prank why don't you show everybody what that is <laughs> Yeah, I put it on their table because I, I I don't know if any of them have ever, except for Bob, have ever seen one before. But. Of course, I've seen one before. Um, this is a, a cassette recorder. I know that because it, it it says cassette recorder on it. Oh, um, <laughs> yeah, it's it requires external things to to work, such as a cassette um, and uh, a person to operate it as well. Okay. Uh, yeah, batteries. Yeah, yeah, yeah um a finite number but many many, many different parts, parts. Good. Maybe. we're gonna get to that in a minute we're oh, gonna good. we're gonna get to that in a minute um there's there's a couple there's one major thing that i want to draw out of this uh little exercise uh and that is that you um when you categorize something you want to categorize it in such a way as it defines it as distinct from other things right i mean sound really uh, you know, really obvious, but it's an important part of categorization. Um, this is a this is a pen, and it is a writing utensil. But you wouldn't just call this a writing utensil because most people would distinguish a pen from a pencil, for instance. And so, if you were describing what made a pen a pen, you would talk about the ink, uh, and and you know, in contrast to a pencil or or perhaps other writing um, instruments. Um, and one of the reasons I wanted to start with this exercise because we're going to we're actually going to do another one in a second uh based on the same um instrument in front of you or same thing in front of you is that uh 
what this helps us to illustrate is the difference between uh, God's incommunicable attributes and his communicable attributes. All right. Um, there are things about God that are that categorize him completely separately from other things. All right. And, um, and those things are his incommunicable attributes. So for instance, if you said, who is God? And you answered, well, he is the, he, he is this good being. Well, you would be correct, but there are other good beings. Angels, for instance, uh, saints that of course one, one day be perfected in glory. Um, so there are, those are God's communicable attributes, things that he shares through creation and redemption with, with others. Uh, but what we are going to be beginning to speak about this morning is his incommunicable attributes. What defines God absolutely as God? Okay. And so this is what we're going to be spending four weeks on. We're going to be starting on that this morning. What defines what this is? Uh, now, there are some other things that were surfaced in your discussion that are really interesting and get into some sort of philosophical or metaphysical concepts, which I find fascinating about things like how you define something. Well, according to its function, uh, to its purpose, that's, that's a really interesting insight and a very good one. We're going to leave that aside, though, for now. What I want you to do is to go back to your item, and I want to, a- want to ask you a different question. Um, Oh, yeah, there we go. God's incommunicable attributes place him in his own category. Isaiah 46, 9 says, for I am God, there is none other. I am God, there is none like me. Uh, So here's the second exercise. I want you now to answer the question, what makes up or constitutes this thing? Slightly different question. Okay. What makes up, what goes into this thing? All right. Joseph, do you, at that back table, would you be willing to, what do you have there and what makes up, what constitutes that thing? Oh, we have a remote control in our table. Yeah. This remote control is composed of what we call electronics. Integrated yep. circuits, resistors, capacitors, and uh, awesome. <laughs> I know about this one. <laughs> for for how many years I know about all these components. But this one, it makes the life of the people easy, but it makes the people lazy. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, because you can say that this is a I want to turn the TV on or off, just sitting here or sleeping. Yeah. It's done. Yeah. This makes convenience for everybody, but be careful that it makes you lazy. <laughs> Very good. And most probably there will be some modification for this. And almost everything is will be incorporated to Alexa. The same. Oh. The same thing. What is inside in here is the same thing in Alexa. Okay. Yeah, it's the same thing in Alexa and Mrs. Alexa turn on the light. Alexa turn on the music. Alexa turn off the music. So be careful, right? So be careful yeah. with this. Thing. <laughs> <laughs> All right, very good. So, um, so that was excellent because there's there's electronics in it. Uh, does anybody have? Uh, did anybody have any plastics in their item? Good. Um, did anybody break it down further than that? Oh, did, 
Ah, very good. What is plastic made out of? Yeah, petroleum products, chemicals. Yeah, so there's a so there's actually a chemical composition to to aspects of well, maybe to everything, but to some of it. Uh, yeah, there's there's a molecular level there to to that. All right. So here's what I want us to consider getting into our specific topic for this morning is that every material thing is made up of other things. All right. Think about yourself. All right. What constitutes a human being? Well, we are composite beings. All right. Um, First Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about uh, a body is made up of lots of different parts. You've got an eye, you've got a hand, you've got a foot. Um, and, and this is, you know, and he's looking at this as a metaphor for a body of Christ and the fact that we need all these different pieces, but we're, we're composite as is the church. The church too is composite. So the, the metaphor there is a biological one, right? We have, you're made up of blood, bones, organs, skin, but, uh, turn with me to first Thessalonians five twenty three, because you're composite in another way as well. I'm not sure what the best word is for this. I've used the word essentially, but I'm not, I, it's possible there's a better word for it. So don't hold me to it. But some, can somebody uh, read 1 Thessalonians 5, 23? Somebody with a microphone would be great. Yeah, Dean, why don't you go ahead and. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and make, and and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord. Good. Our Lord, yeah. Does yours have our Lord Jesus Christ? My version has Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, it does. Yeah. Okay, good, good, good. Um, thank you, Dean. So here there's spirit and soul and body are all named. Now I'm not going to get into this morning into whether mankind is tripartite, which would be soul, spirit, and body, or whether we are two parts, and there'd be a lot of theologians that would say we are soul slash spirit, that, that's referring to one aspect of us, and then also body. I'm not going to answer that question this morning. I simply want to point out that it's very clear that there are multiple aspects of who we are. We're composite. Uh, we, we aren't just our bodies, but neither are we just spirits, all right? Uh, you might be able to break down mankind into our psychic nature, too, that we have a conscience, a mind, a will. All right. So, again, we are composite and every created thing is a composite being. Except for God, of course, who is not created at all. All right. And that is what we are talking about this morning when we talk about the simplicity of God. All right. God is not composite. He's not made up of other things, right? He is essentially one thing, all right? So let me give you a definition of simplicity. First, let me say what it isn't. <laughs> it doesn't mean that God is simple to understand or easy to understand, all right? There's incredible depth to God who has known the mind of the Lord, right? Uh, in Romans chapter 11. Um, 
we, we're not talking about God being comprehensible, all right, in the sense that we can completely understand everything about God. In fact, there is only, uh, only the Son is able to fully comprehend the Father, well, and the Spirit as well, all right? Um, even, even when we see God one day, uh, whatever that is like, um, we, we will, we will grow forever in the knowledge of God without ever arriving at full comprehension of God. That's, that's his eternal depth. All right. So we're not talking about God being simple to understand when we're talking about God's divine simplicity. What we are talking about is that God is one thing or one essence and not comprised of anything else. Now, this is something that is, it's kind of a philosophical or metaphysical concept. Um, the, the passage that is perhaps the clearest um, single passage that expresses this is John 4.24, where Jesus says that God is spirit. All right? And we have to worship him in spirit and in truth. And in fact, there's a lot of overlap between God's spirituality and his simplicity. All right. Um, they're, they're very closely linked. Uh, these things also considerably overlap with what Pastor Tim will be looking at next week, with his, which is God's aseity. Uh, the fact that he is self-existent. Okay. So there's, there is some overlap between some of these things. Throughout history, um, this has been you know, this aspect of who God is has been very clearly enunciated. Um, this idea of God being without parts, all right, often is put together with passions, meaning like human emotions that drive you, okay? It doesn't mean that there's, that there's nothing that, you know, might be close to emotions in God. That's not what it means. It means that God doesn't get angry, right? Some, it doesn't move him apart from whom he is, all right? Um, but without parts has been um, clearly stated about God from the time of, of Philo, who is an, a, a Jewish intertestamental uh, writer. Origen, early church. Origen is an interesting figure because he was, he's a very important and seminal figure in the early church, but he also had some issues with his theology. So you don't follow him blindly. <laughs> we shouldn't follow anybody blindly, but a special warning with Origen. Uh, he's, he's, he's said some really good things, but he's also said some things that are problematic. Uh, Athanasius, um, and then Christian creeds have picked this up, um, including the Westminster Confession in 2.1 states, there is but one living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions. And it goes on to speak a number of other things about him. He's immutable, he's immense, he's eternal, he's incomprehensible, etc. So this is something that's been very clearly um, stated and confessed by the church in history. Uh, but I want to give a caveat here about what, um, what we're talking about and what we are not talking about when you speak of the simplicity of God. And one thing that's very interesting about a systematic theology of God is how the triunity of God, the fact that God is three persons and one God, um, how that interacts with a systematic theology of God. And this is something that's always interested me because in systematic theologies, I don't think this is handled terribly well, uh, although it's hard to handle it. 
Um, at some place in some systematic theologies, it'll talk about the triunity of God, and then it'll go into some of these other aspects, like his simplicity, his aseity, etc. In some cases, the triunity of God will come after all of these things. Um, it, it's hard to know how to fit some of these things together. Um, but in regards simply to simplicity, there's an important caveat here, which is that we're talking about the essence of God and not to the three divine persons, okay? So when we're talking about God is one thing, we're talking about his essence being one thing, right? God being one thing. Um, but we would also want to be careful about saying that God is not made up of the Trinity, okay? This is really important. You don't add the Son to the Father and the spirit to get God. Okay. God, the father is God. He's the essence of God. The son is God. He's the essence of God. Although he has that essence by means of his begottenness from the father. All right. The spirit is God. It has the essence of God, even though he, he has that essence by way of the father through the son. All right. But they are each fully God. They each have the one indivisible essence of God, right? So there's some interesting things that we need to make sure we have right as we interact sort of the simplicity of God, which is something that we're stating about who God is in his essence with the Trinity. Um, and, and just want to make sure those caveats are clear. Um, I'm going to, I'm hopeful that we might have some time for Q and a at the end. And so Maybe this is a place we might want to revisit if there's questions and answers. But Augustine says this. I think it's a good quote. He says, in God himself, therefore, when the equal son or the Holy Spirit equal to the father and the son is joined to the equal father, God does not become greater than each of them severally. Because that perfectness cannot increase. But whether it be the father or the son or the Holy Spirit, he is perfect. And God, the father, the son and the Holy Spirit is perfect. And therefore, he is a trinity rather than triple. Interesting. You see uh, a, a very erudite spiritual mind trying to grasp and trying to find language to make the biblical revelation clear as possible. So let's then get into the simplicity of God. And oh, oh first, we're going to do a little one little more exercise. I'm not going to give you long for this, um, but in your table groups, I want you to complete the statement, God is, but you're not allowed to use adjectives. Okay? God is holy is an adjective. I, you can't say that. That's not an answer to this question. Okay? God is good. You can't use that. All right? It's an adjective. God is a noun. Okay? And you have to use it using only Bible verses. Okay? Let, let's see if you can come up with two or three. You should be able to come up with at least one. Ready? Go. All right. So if, if, you, if you only got one or two, that's okay. That's okay. Um, let's, uh, yeah, let's start here at this table. Give me, uh, give me one. Uh, uh, we got a whole bunch here, but uh, okay. Um, God is spirit. God is spirit. Good. Do you have a Bible verse for that? You have a yes, reference? we do. Uh, John 4, 24. John 4, 24. God is spirit. Good. Good. At the back. 
God is creator. Do you have a verse for that? God is love. Okay, good. That's 1 John 4, 16. Okay, or 4, 8 as well. Okay, good. Good. Okay, uh, Beth's table. Do you have any others? Yeah, yeah, good. Yeah, now the interesting thing is sometimes uh, adjectives and nouns get blurred a little bit. Uh, that, that, yeah, that's an interesting one. No, but I, I think that, I mean, if you're right. You're right. Yeah, good. This table. Uh, God is Lord of Lords. Okay, Lord, good. Yeah, Lord of Lords. Mm. Sorry, a little bit louder, Margaret. Oh, Revelation 17, 14. Okay, good. This front table. Well, we, we decided that was a trick question. <laughs> we decided that was a trick question. Oh, you did? And we just said God is. <laughs> As a sufficient answer. I, I am who I am? Yeah, that's from, that's from I am who I am out of Exodus 3, 14 or whatever it is. Okay. <clears throat> but I think William, we had another one too, didn't we? Um, God is word, the word. Ah, yeah. John God 1, 1. Word. Yeah. yeah. John chapter 1. Good. All right. Um, let me, just for the sake of time, um, did anybody get God is light? First John 1. Oh, you did. Excellent. First John 1, 15. Um, did anybody get 1 Corinthians 1, 30? That's talking about Jesus. Um, so, you, you know, that's an interesting question because do any of these things pertain to who he is in relationship to redemption rather than to who he is sort of intrinsically in his nature? That's an interesting question, of course, but, um, leaving that question aside, he is wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Um, And, and we could probably keep going, but there are, there are several. No, that's good. Once you're done with that, Paris, thank you. It's interesting that this question of who God is helps us to understand that God is his attributes. Okay, and this is the first implication of, of simplicity that I want us to, to think about here. All right, God does not have love or power or wisdom. He is power, wisdom, goodness. Okay, did you get that? God does not, now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that every time somebody says that God, ha, God has great power. Oh, heresy, you know, we stand up in the middle of the church. And no, no, no. We understand that at times the scripture uses, and we do too, we use shortcuts in language to refer to things, right? The Bible does this constantly, okay? What I'm saying is that we need to understand as Christians that there's a, a true way of speaking about these things. And that God does not possess love as something outside of himself, he is love. He is goodness. He is power. He is wisdom. Okay. He is his attributes. Now there's a couple of reasons why this is really important. Okay. 
first of all, if these things were above him, all right, um, then those things would be God and not him, right? Because they, were su- they would supersede him. They would be before him, right? If these things, if, if, and there are people that, there are people in history. Last week, uh, you know, Brother Bob here talked about the importance of historical theology because there's actually very few new errors under the sun. They've all cropped up in history at some time or another. And there are people that have fallen into, the, into this error before. There are people that have said, well, there's this essence of, of love and power and, and God kind of gets this somehow. Like, oh, no, hang on, that's bad. That's really bad. Okay. Because um, then you have uh, there's a couple of reasons it's bad. One is that you've, whatever this thing is, that's really God, not God. But then also, uh, then all of a sudden you've got an impersonal God that's, a, that's above this, where it's just this floating love power thing, right? So it's important that God doesn't have love or power, that these things aren't above him. But it's also important that these things aren't below him. And there's a technical word that's used when it comes to this. And it, 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 the word is accidental, all right? That, that God, that these things could maybe be or could not be. Now, this is actually really important because this is a distinction to some degree between uh, our God and, for instance, the God of Islam, and who they say Allah is, all right? You may not know this, but the God Allah uh, that Islam worships, worships is not a loving God. It's not an intrinsic part of who he is. Um, that is, you know, God's goodness, his love, that is an intrinsic part of, of God, the true God, the God we serve. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. So if, if these attributes were accidental to God, if there are things that maybe he brought into being only, you know, sometime after, you know, not in eternity, uh, something to do with creation and redemption itself. You would never know what God was truly like. Is God truly loving? Is God truly good? Is he truly wise? Well, you wouldn't know because these things are below him, right? But they're not. They're, they're, they're who he is. God is his attributes. Um, one of my favorite theologians, Herman Bavink, he, he also points out that this is a distinction with polytheism because the polytheists think about like the Greek pantheon of gods or, well, or any, you know, any pagans, they've got their God of war. They've got their God of fruitfulness and fertility. They've got their war, their God of art or whatever. And, and they sort of piecemeal God out. Um, but we have, one God who is indivisible. It, it, there's no piecemealing God. He, he, he's all these things, right? And you, you get the sense at times in scripture where, you know, I'm thinking of Jonah. Is this the best example? I don't know. But when Jonah is taken by the sailors uh, and, and they face the big wind as he's fleeing to Tarshish and, and Jonah, you know, they say, you know, pray to your God. And, and they ask Jonah who he is. And well, you know, I'm the God that's, created you know everything including the seas and all of a sudden they're like oh no that's bad right like you're you're this god is overall right they don't have gods like that if they're pagans they have a god of the sea and a god of the land and a god of this and that and the other thing okay so this is a real distinction between 
um, the God of the Bible, the Lord, and the gods of paganism. So God is his attributes. That's one of the things that we mean, one of the implications of the simplicity of God. Uh, another aspect of, or implication of the simplicity of God, this is, I, I run into this quite a bit, is the idea, and I'm not sure what the best language is to use, so I'm going to put this in quotes, but that God is balanced. Now, if God is his attributes, what that means, not only is that, you know, God is love, or God is wisdom, or God is goodness, uh, but it also means his love is his wisdom. And his goodness is his power. Because it's all God. All right? Now, don't get me wrong. It's not as if we cannot speak of those different aspects of who God is. I think it's very helpful to do that. So I have no problem when somebody stands up from the pulpit or from Sunday school or small group and say, hey, listen, let's talk about the power of God. We're going to look at the power of God as one sort of aspect of who God is. That, that's good. No problem with that. All right. As long as we understand that actually his power has, it co-inheres with his love and his goodness and everything else about who he is, because it's him. Okay. Now, so I'm, I'm stating this truth as the fact that God is balanced, but I run into this all the time because there is a common conception of God, which is actually true, namely that God is love that in our culture has risen above all other aspects and attributes of God. All right. Um, in an interesting way, this is, this actually evidences the fact that, you know, the biblical worldview has permeated our culture, even as it now is leaving that to some degree. Uh, it, this, it was not always recognized in the pagan world that God is loving. That's, that's, that came in with, with the God of the Bible. With, with Christ and his revelation. I mean, it stems back to the Old Testament. Um, but nowadays, if people conceive of any God, they conceive of a loving God. Whereas the pagans in the Old Testament, they, you know, they, they feared God. They would offer sacrifices. They kind of hoped he would be propitious towards them. But you know, was he loving him? Yeah, you know, who knows? Um, but now people have this loving God and they think anything that doesn't, you know, adhere to the to their idea of a loving god it just gets thrown out right and i i face this all the time in some of my writing and interaction with people on hell uh there are christian you know christians out there that are universalists that they say there's no there's no hell or it's going to be vacated one day everybody's going to leave hell everybody's going to be in heaven and they start from the standpoint that god is love and so then they in light of that they filter everything through that lens but no, God's love is his power. It is his goodness, which opposes evil. They're all one, right? So God is, is I'm going to use, use the word balanced in that way. And it means that we have to consider God in that balanced way as well. Go for it. I, 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 the danger is I'm setting a precedent here with questions and answers during, and I'm hoping to have some questions and answers at the end, but go ahead, Hannah. I note that um, it's a pretty common um, perception, not perception, I guess I've seen before where people will parse out God's attributes to his persons. Yes. So God, the father is just powerful, wrathful, you know, like 
wrathful, whereas God the Son is loving. He's a shepherd. He leads us and guides us. And the Holy Spirit is like God is mystical, kind of supernatural um, beyond us. So that's something to be careful of as well. Yeah, that's right. So the um, so there is um, there is what the technical name for that emphasis in scripture is called appropriations. All right. So is it's not wrong that when we think of God's power, that we may tend to think more in terms of God, the father. That's OK. As long as you understand that they are inseparably connected and that that the father never acts without the son and the spirit and that the son and the spirit say, share the same essence of the father. OK. So there's 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 certain emphases, but it's always that coherence. Okay, so that's a good point. God is balanced. One, oh, what did I write down here? Haha. <laughs> no attributes are superior. Problem of God is love. Okay, good. Lastly, the implication here is that God is the first thing. All right. Um, now this. Uh, yeah, to some degree, I'm overlapping maybe a little bit. Hopefully, I'm not going too much into what uh, Pastor Tim's going to talk about next week. But it's an important part of simplicity, and there is overlap. That unity or singularity always precedes multiplicity. All right. Now that may sound like a big concept. All right. So let me give you a, let me give you an example. Have you ever played the why game with children? Why you know why is the sky blue? I don't think I could even answer that. <laughs> But, you know, there are reasons the sky is blue. Okay, well, why is that? And, and, you, and you don't have to play, you don't have to get many steps. I don't know, maybe four or five. And, and you're out of questions. Or you're out of answers. Why? Because the answer is God. Right? And, and it goes from uh, complexity to simplicity. It goes from multiplicity to singularity. All right? And in fact, this is, this is, this is intuitive. It's intuitive that we know that if there are lots of people in the room, that this means that because we all had fathers and mothers and that if you go back far enough, there was a, there was a single couple, right? I, I believe this is actually inherently intuitive, um, that people, people understand this. And, and actually, this is borne out in the sociological literature. So you may or may not know that in the sociological literature, they've studied um, children and their inherent sense of God. And did you know that children that, are, that grow up in completely atheistic households still have a conception of God in, the, in their early childhood? They automatically believe in a God. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but why would you believe in one God rather than 20? Yeah, it is. That's right. That's right. It's because you inherently know Now, there's what's the time. There's actually a, there's actually a, a really easy sort of Sunday school answer to this, right? The, the easy Sunday school answer, and it's not wrong. It's good. Uh, the easy Sunday school answer is that, well, that's the truth. And we all have the truth imprinted in some way on our, on our souls. That's, that's true. Uh, but it's also borne out in our experience and in the empirical world that we see. Um, and so, uh, yeah, People don't inherently have a conception of, of 20 gods. When people look at the mountains, they don't, it's interesting. They don't think that, you know, a race of giants placed them there, right? They automatically believe in a one God that made that. And it's because 
multiplicity actually has to have its center. And if you go back far enough in singularity. So Stephen Charnock, he says this, if God were not a spirit, he could not be creator. All multitude begins in and is reduced to unity. As above multitude, there is an absolute unity. So above mixed creatures, there's an absolute simplicity. You cannot conceive number without conceiving the beginning of it in that which was not number, a unit. You cannot conceive any mixture, but you must conceive some simple thing to be the original and basis of it. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about it in these terms, but just from the idea of numbers, there is a defense for God in that. And the fact that there are, you know, and, and, and mathematicians will actually talk about this. They'll talk about the uniqueness of the number one. That, that the number one has a relationship to all the other numbers that's completely unique. Um, anyways, enough of that. I'm getting into things I don't know about. I'm fascinated by, by math, but I, I'm not very good at it. Here's some implications for us, all right? As we, we, as we speak the word uh, in the home, in the church, in small groups, and out into the world, how do we speak of the simplicity of God? Well, let's start with the home. If you're training children, Sunday school teachers, um, if you're training children, I think it's, it's, it's quite useful just to say, hey, listen, God is one thing, right? He's not made up of other things. Uh, he is he is love, he is truth, he is light, he is wisdom, etc. right? Uh, now, of course, when we say one thing, we mean his essence. Um, but, but hopefully that is, I think it's okay to say that. Um, it gets into an interesting question of <laughs> how much the essence of God is personal without the three persons. That's an interesting question. But uh, we're not going to deal with it now. Um, you know, reinforce the natural sense of one indivisible God, right? Your children, they actually know that there is one indivisible God. So reinforce that, right? Play the why game, not with frustration, but with triumph, right? <laughs> oh, we're going to play the why game all over again, right? And answer this big litany of questions that goes back to God. That's good. Do it. Uh, in the church and small groups, make sure that one attribute of God is not played against another. All right. Make sure, and this is one of the reasons why the answer to almost everything is read the Bible and pray, <laughs> is that, you know, we need to read the scriptures so that we have a sense of the right balance so that we don't think of a, a loving God without his, without his power and his holiness. That, of course, when you have sin, then has to react against that. Or his goodness would be the same right? Make sure one attribute is not played against another. In the world, listen, this is supremely important. And this is, these verses are what, uh, you know, these are talking about these verses about how Paul can go to, to the pagan world, to Athens in this case, and he can say, hey, listen, one God created everything that you see. And they could actually, to some degree, grasp that. Why? Well, it's because they, they have a sense of God, according to what it says in Romans chapter 1. They suppress that truth in their sins because they don't want to have to bow to that one God, but, but they know it and you should know it too. And you should talk with people as understanding that they have an inherent sense of, of one creator God. 
one father of all who's over all and through all and in all, right? Ephesians 4. So the simplicity of God, not the idea that we can easily comprehend God, but the idea that he is, he is one essence. He is his attributes. He is one thing. All right. And that's supremely important. I have four minutes for Q&A. Here we go. This is your chance. Stump the pastor. I might just say I don't know, but you can try. Yeah, great question. So the question is, we didn't hear it, is that um, in, in the scriptures, it says that, that, that Christ doesn't know uh, the, the time of his, uh, of his coming. But, you know, how is that possible if they are one, one essence, one wisdom? Uh, Christ uh, is omniscient. So the, the answer, uh, there's been a couple of answers that have been given in the history of theology. I'm just going to kind of give my, my best answer to it. Um, and that is that um, I, I think that that pertained, that lack of knowledge pertained in particular to his incarnation and to the fact that in his incarnation, he willingly uh, put aside not his omniscience, but his exercise of it as God. All right. So I actually believe that Christ now knows that. Okay. Um, so that, that, that'd be my best, that'd be my best answer. Um, yeah. What else could, could I, could I say about that? I mean, Christ, as far as, I think it's pretty clear in the gospel accounts that there were times that Christ had the knowledge of God. He's able to see into people's hearts. He's able to understand that. But I believe that that was not an independent exercise of his godness, that that was, um, that that was through the means of the Holy Spirit. And that was part of him sort of um, leaving behind the prerogatives of his divinity in heaven, um, though, not, though not his divinity. God, he is not um, incarnate, right? No, he, that, he is. No, but he's 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 with God now. He's yep. not in man. He's not. He is a man in the flesh. Yes, he is. He has glorified flesh. Hmm. Yeah, because so so when he so when he ascended, he he ascended in his glorified body, and he right now he is the first man in heaven. Okay, I remember the day when it it clicked to me that there is a man in heaven. Okay, this is it's okay if like some of these things don't settle right away. This is actually really amazing that that Christ is the first man in heaven, and what that means then is that 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 all of us will join him one day as men with God. Um, but yeah, he is. He is a man. He will forever be a man uh, in, in his glorified state. He is the God man. Keep going. <laughs> but he hasn't laid aside his deity, though, which is nope. which is when he was here on earth. He laid aside some of that, right? So how does that work? Yeah. So again, so we would want to be careful with how we talk about him laying aside his deity. Um, I'm not even sure if I would use that language per se um i would say he laid it i would say he laid aside the prerogative 
of his deity. He laid aside or laid aside the uh, independent use of his divine powers. Um, and that those things were exercised in the power of God. And actually, the early part of Acts is really good about this in, in talking about how um, God did mighty works through him. All right. But yeah, but he was God. Um, but there was a there was an agency there. There was a flow of that divine power as God, uh, as, as the Lord Jesus sort of, you know, he, there was that humiliation of coming down to be part of us. God is simple. Uh, that's a everything else is composite. Everything else is is complex. Um, let's pray. 